This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to mclanahanacademy.com, enroll today, and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 702. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get the free class 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, purchase a course there. It's a win-win. You get great content and you keep the podcast free of charge. You can also click on the little super thanks button under this video if you want to throw a few pennies my way that way. Or click on the support tab at brianmclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mclanahan.com. Another great way to support the show. Also... You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Or go to anchor.fm, subscribe there. All kinds of ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review. Comment wherever you can comment. That helps the algorithm. Gets people interested in the product. And of course, we want more ears and eyes on this program so more people are thinking locally and acting locally. And I do appreciate all your support. If you got a show request, send it my way. That way I can see what you want to hear. And of course, I may not respond to it, but I do read them. So I thank you for all the support and all that you do to keep the Brian McClanahan Show going. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic of the day. I mentioned yesterday we're going to have an interesting week this week because we're going to talk about this idea of emotivism and how that impacts American politics. And I want to start on the legal side of that. We're going to talk about our good friend Victor Davis Hanson again and and uh, we're going to look at a nice essay about um, conservatism and what I think is the problem with modern conservatives. And, and Jesse Merriam agrees with me, and I'm, I'm going to mention that again. But And then, uh, and this is going to be a great week, but today we're going to talk about a little piece that appeared in, uh, at, at Yahoo News. It's, a, it's an op-ed, and the title is How the Scourge of Originalism is Taking Over the Supreme Court. It's by law professor Erwin Chemerinsky. And I want you to think about emotivism as I go through this. You see, judges are charged with defending the Constitution. If you believe in judicial review, their job is to defend the Constitution, to look at the law absent from politics, absent from emotion, and make a rational decision about the text of the document, if you want to be a textualist, or if you want to be an originalist, what the intent of that law was. Not, okay, well, let's see, this is where the, uh, the politics are going on this issue. This is what the public sentiment is on, this, is on this issue. I'm going to make a decision not based on the law, not based on what's written, not based on what the, the people who wrote the law intended, but what I think the law should mean, and what I think 
the American polity thinks the law should mean. In other words, a judge is bound by the law to make a decision, not their politics, not their, the, the political views of the population at large. A judge is not there to make a political decision. This is what Jefferson talked about with judicial review. He was, he was not happy, with, say, with John Marshall, who he thought was making political decisions. When he said that the Marbury v. Madison decision was an arbiter dissertation, right? It was just, it was Marshall's opinion on an issue. It wasn't necessarily based on an understanding of what the law was. Now, Marshall also said it's the job of a justice to say what the law is. So this is an expansive view. Marshall, this is where Marshall is, is highly uh, conflicting and, of course, conflicted with originalism. He's, he's not someone that believed in what the ratifiers said about the Constitution, with the exception of Baron v. Baltimore. It's, Baron v. Baltimore was the only time I think Marshall was right. I mean, he, even a blind squirrel gets a nut every now and then, right? But Marshall was correct about that. The, the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. He was correct. The other thing, of course, Gibbons v. Ogden, uh, which is often seen as an expansion of the Commerce Clause, um, Marshall did say that intrastate commerce was free from federal regulation. So as long as you're trading within the state, it doesn't matter. The federal government can't touch it. It's when you go across state lines that you have issues with that. But there were a couple things that Marshall said were accurate. Now, he also, of course, uh, even in some of his statements where he was wrong, said some things that were right on, right? The power to tax is the power to destroy and things like this. So, But Marshall was, in many ways, the epitome of the activist judge, right? I mean, he was... And so what we've had from that point forward, we've had activist judges throughout American history, but Marshall really was the beginning of some of this stuff in the United States. There were others. But when you read this piece, when I'm going to read it, what Chemerinsky is doing here, and again, think about emotion. The law doesn't always fit with our preferred political agenda. The law doesn't always fit with our preferred emotional outcome. But, to Chemerinsky, that doesn't matter because the judge, to Chemerinsky, should make a decision based essentially on emotion. Now, he's appealing to that in this piece, so let me get into that. He says, in 1987, the Senate resoundingly rejected the nomination of Judge Robert Bork for the Supreme Court because it found his originalist views unacceptable. As a law professor, Bork argued that the meaning of a constitutional provision is fixed when it is adopted and can be changed only by amendment. Well, this is entirely correct. I mean, look, the hit job on Bork was monumental. Now, remember, this is 1987, and this is a Reagan appointee, and there was the, the Democrats, of course, controlled the Senate. And what you found in the 80s and 90s, and we, we look at you know, the recent Supreme Court confirmation hearings as somehow a departure from the norm. It wasn't. In fact, it's the Democrats who really politicized this stuff back in the 80s and 90s with people like Bork and Clarence Thomas. And who was front and center in that? Well, of course, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, did much to bring about this nonsense. Because before this point, generally Supreme Court judges were, 
accepted the pre- it was recognized the president as the leader of a political party could could appoint who they wanted this was the spoils but the senate i mean and look the senate does have a role in confirmation but what happened here of course was the politicization of this in that they didn't like the views because they thought and the democrats knew that if you got an originalist majority on the supreme court much of their sacred cow legislation was going to be slaughtered because it didn't have any merit in the Constitution itself. This is what Chemerinsky is setting up here. He says it in the very next paragraph. They understood that should Robert Bork and anyone like him get on the Supreme Court, that their expansive view of the Constitution and their expansive view of where you could find these powers was going to be defeated. This is why the left today is calling for packing the court, reducing the court's jurisdiction, doing all kinds of things to try to hurt the court because they know they can't win in it right now. And that was the only way they could win for a long period of time. So his next paragraph. Under this view, there would be no constitutional protection for abortion or other privacy rights, no protection for women or gays and lesbians from discrimination, and no right to freedom of speech except for political expression. Now let me stop here for a second. If you look at what originalism means, it means an understanding of the Constitution that the federal government has purely limited powers, but the states can do all kinds of things. So he's saying there would be no protection. Well, that's taking out the equation of the states. Do you think that the states wouldn't do some of this stuff? Of course they would. Now, oh, oh, McClanahan, wait a second, but you would have states like, like Alabama, Mississippi. They wouldn't have any of this stuff. Oklahoma. It'd be run by a bunch of Crackpots, hayseeds, women would be stuck in the kitchen. People would be abused. Now, of course, every state constitution has a bill of rights. And so anybody in these states can sue in the state constitution to protect themselves from unconstitutional state power. And we just saw in Kansas, which is a red state supposedly, that the people of Kansas We're not interested in extreme restrictions on abortion in that state. So all this just goes back to the states. The states can do what they want in these issues. And of course, you could say, well, but, you know, the states wouldn't have done this in the 1950s and 60s. Maybe they wouldn't have. But this has always been a federal, not not a federal issue, but an issue of the states. It's always been an issue of federalism. But this last sentence is the funniest part. There would be no right to freedom of speech except for political expression. That is the most important part of this. Political expression is the most important thing to protect. I just saw a headline that a woman was arrested in Scotland for holding up a sign, abolish the monarchy. Well, that's, I mean, if you have freedom of speech, that's the most important expression to have. That you can say what you believe politically without threats from the government. This is the most important thing. You, I mean, this is, this is the whole idea behind it, right? Now, would there be, there's, first of all, as, as the proponents of Roe v. Wade even pointed out, there wasn't really much in the Constitution that gave them the authority to do this. This was a political decision. No protection for women or gay. I mean, where's he getting this, right? From discrimination? Of course, they're, they're protected. They're protected from abuse. They're protected from violence. These are things that every citizen is protected from. But these, some other issues, of course, were up to the states. 
Bork, who was impeccably qualified, was defeated by the largest margin of any Supreme Court nominee in history. And this is because conservatives got scared. The Democrats controlled the Senate. Conservatives got scared. They didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to make too many waves. They oh, that guy's a radical. We don't want to be that. This was a time when the Republicans were just happy to be sitting at the table. And I think in some ways today, they're still that party. I mean, they're still the stupid party, but this is what was going on. Senators from both parties voted against Bork because his originalist philosophy was, a, was seen as nonsensical and dangerous. No, it wasn't. It wasn't seen as nonsensical. Maybe to do- doofuses like Chemerinsky it's seen as nonsensical, but it's the exact, it's the precise way the Constitution was argued when it was ratified. This is James Wilson standing in the Statehouse Yards saying, well, you mean, if it doesn't say the federal government can do it, they can't do it. That's originalism. That's exactly what it is, right? I mean, there's, there's no, we, you can't get around this. It's, not, it's, it's based on the actual understanding of the Constitution when it was ratified by the states, by the people of the states. It makes no sense to limit the Constitution's broad language to what was intended in the agrarian slave society of 1787. <laughs> See, this is an emotional argument. Find the emotion in this. It makes no sense. That's, a, that's, an emo- that's, not, a, that's not a logical argument. That's not a rational argument. Why doesn't it make any sense? Well, because of slavery. You see, this is an appeal to emotion. Slavery is bad, so it makes no sense to think something is okay when slaveholders had it. That's an emotional argument. It's a fallacy of logic. It's not, it doesn't even, it's, it's not a rational argument in any way whatsoever. It's an emotional argument. Emotivism. Who would find this appealing? Well, the elves that I talked about yesterday, or any person that is quote-unquote college-educated on the left. Because they're appealing to emotion all the time. Right? These are emotional people. Everything is emotionally driven. And that's who it appealed to, that's, this appeals to, right? This idea that, well, these people, slaveholders, bad. That's an emotional argument. Oh, and they're farmers, too. Well, of course, we're not farmers anymore, so nothing that farmers said makes any sense. Is that true? Well, of course not. But this is his argument. His argument simply is, if a racist farmer said it, then it has, it has no sense. It makes no sense today. Well, that would include someone like Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he was a racist farmer <laughs> for at least a time, right? Before he became a high-priced lawyer, corporate lawyer. But, you know, Lincoln was a racist farmer. Just about everybody was in America until the 20th century. Originalism was rightly regarded as a radical approach to constitutional law that would upend decades of precedence in a myriad of areas. So, was rightly regarded. I mean, it's right. A radical approach to say that James Wilson, by the way, who wasn't a farmer, said this, or that many other individuals who weren't farmers said this, when the Constitution was ratified, makes it radical. Think about what he's saying. Again, Using the word radical is an emotional word. It's, it's not a logical word. It means nothing. Radical, radical has an emotional tinge to it. Ooh, that's radical. I don't want to be radical. I don't like that. That's exactly what he's going for here. And it would upend decades of precedence. Precedence not based on law, but emotion and political opinion. You see, 
So then Chemerinsky says, now though originalism is in its ascendancy on the Supreme Court, in case after case in the last term, the conservative justices base their decisions on the cramped reading of American history. Cramped reading. Cramped reading of American history. Under their, that erroneous analysis, they found no constitutional right to abortion. Well, of course, because it's not there. <laughs> you can't find any constitutional right to that. Now, the states could certainly regulate this. This is exactly what's happening. All the Supreme Court did was say, all right, look, um, states, you can decide what to do here. And put it back to the people. Put it back to the people of the states. This is exactly what was designed in the Constitution. As I've said before on this program, if you take my Originalist Papers class, by the way, at McClanahan Academy, which you need, it's a four-part class, you can get it for a discount if you buy all four parts together, uh, but you need that class. I go through this. I talk about what the founding generation said about state powers, federal powers, and of course, that issue would have been purely under the direction of the states. This is where people, when they go, I'm going to get these conservatives, I'm going to show you how in this state... This is what they thought about abortion in the 18th century. Okay, well, you've just proved the point, right? The states were always the vehicle for this issue, right? Not the federal government, but the states. There was no federal intervention in this. It was all about the states. This is how stupid all this is. They don't even realize what they're doing. They're actually supporting the Supreme Court's decision in this particular way. Now, I know the Supreme Court, uh, in the opinion, Alito's opinion, got into history and some other things to prove that this was never... He didn't have to do all that. All they had to say is, this is not under the purview of the federal government according to the 10th Amendment, and so therefore it's invalid and it goes back to the states. That's it. That's all they had to do. They didn't have to go into a history lesson and try to say, you know, this is what the founding generation thought about it. They didn't have to do any of that. It's very easy to knock this stuff down. It's not under the purview of the federal government. It violates the 10th Amendment. goes back to the states. That's it. That's all you have to do. And essentially, that's what Clarence Thomas did in his concurring opinion. Well, we needed to go further with this. We needed to say, all right, uh, if this is the case, we're using an erroneous interpretation of the 14th Amendment here. Well, then what about all this stuff, too? And he's right about that. And that's what Chemerinsky is really upset about. Then he says, a broad constitutional right to have concealed weapons in public. I actually agree with Chemerinsky here because, you know what? That's not originalism that they're using there. Mm -mm. That's not originalism at all. In fact, that's the 14th Amendment. That's the radical Republican interpretation of the Constitution, not the originalist interpretation. You see, what Chemerinsky has done here is just conflate two things. He's confused them. One was originalism. The other one was not because they used a 14th Amendment. He's going to get this wrong in the next paragraph, but I'll explain it then. He used a 14th Amendment, Thomas did, a 14th Amendment defense of the New York concealed weapons ban. A constitutional requirement for government to subsidize religious schools. Well, of course, uh, this again was an erroneous interpretation. It's, it's a 14th Amendment. It's not originalism. This is, this is Hugo Black going beyond originalism and actually using the 14th Amendment. Right? It, see, the 14th Amendment is not the original Constitution. This is where all these people are, are just lunatics. The 14th Amendment was ratified in, eight, well, ratified, quote unquote, in 1868. And even during the debate, and again, in Radical Republicans at McClanahan Academy, I read you the speech that Bingham made in support of the 14th Amendment. And what you'll find in it, there's maybe a case to be made that he wanted incorporation, but there's also a case to be made clearly that he didn't intend anything else 
except for essentially the right to sue in court and to own property. This was it. This is what they're going for. So go out and get that course too, because I go through this. But regardless, this is a 14th Amendment issue, not an originalist issue. It's a 14th Amendment issue. And a constitutional right for high school coaches to lead prayers at school football games. There's no constitutional... What they said is that, well, again, there, this is an erroneous interpretation of the 14th Amendment. Not If it's originalism, then none of this would have been before the court anyways, because this would have been a state issue entirely. All of these things are state issues. You see, that is the problem. The first one was state laws. Yes, the states had the right to ban or to, to accept abortions. The second one is a state law. The states have a right to regulate firearms. As long as it's not a federal law in question, this is not, should not be before a federal court. The government's subsidizing religious schools. That, again, is state legislation. This is Hugo Black because he was worried about Catholics expanding the powers of the Supreme Court and the federal government. No, this is a state law. The next one is a state law. You see what's going on here is that Chemerinsky is upset that states can act like states. He wants one-size-fits-all government for everybody. But this is an emotional appeal. It's emotional because he says it. In expanding the scope of the Second Amendment and striking down New York's law limiting having concealed weapons in public, the court said, quote, Only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls out the Second Amendment, outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. In other words, look to the law that existed in 1791 when the Second Amendment was adopted, and perhaps 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified. Now, see, this is not... Thomas made it clear in that, in that opinion that it was based essentially on the 14th Amendment, that they couldn't do any of this without the 14th Amendment in incorporation, which was not an understanding of the 14th Amendment. And this isn't even a Second Amendment issue, because this was a state issue. We know states could regulate firearms, and I've already done a whole podcast on this, throughout American history, right? The states could do whatever they wanted. The states could do whatever they wanted. Now, you know who made a very broad, he had a very broad view of the Second Amendment? The Radical Republicans. In fact, Charles Sumner brought this up, get that class again, in the Crimes Against Kansas speech. He brought it up. He brought it up as an issue, well, he's dealing with a territory there, not a state, but a territory. And he said, this is an issue where if it's a territory, we're, we're trying to regulate firearms. You can't do it. You can't do it. This is in the 18, it's in 1856, right? It's a territory now, still federal government, but he's saying there can be no federal law prohibiting firearms in the territory. You can't do it. Hmm. Interesting. It's Charles Sumner. The guy that all the lefties love. In the ruling on prayers on a school football field, the court said that in determining the meaning of the Constitution's religion clauses, the line that counts... Well, I'm sorry, the line that courts and governments must draw between the permissible and the impermissible has to faithfully reflect, quote, the understanding of the founding fathers. Well, uh, this is, again, we're going, they're using the 14th Amendment, not the First Amendment. This is a 14th Amendment issue. Okay. In overturning, overturning Roe v. Wade, the court looked at abortion regulation beginning in England and the American colonies and stressed that absence of historical protection of abortion rights in the United States. The absence, I'm sorry. The world we live in is vastly different from 1787, when the Constitution was written, or 1791, when the Bill of Rights was adopted, or 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified. 
This is an emotional charge now. I mean, oh, we're different now. It's an emotional appeal. We're different. We're different from these people. So we need to have different views. But you're dealing with a written constitution. We, th that's static. Now, the four, he, look at what he said here, though. He's even against the 14th Amendment, even though the 14th Amendment is the vehicle by which all of these things happen in a 20th century interpretation of that 14th Amendment. Not, not a 19th century interpretation. Because the next part is, again, he gets really into emotion here. Under originalism, Brown v. Board of Education, which ruled that public school segregation violated equal protection under the 14th Amendment, was wrongly decided because the Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also voted to segregate the District of Columbia public schools, and there was no indication that Congress meant to outlaw segregation. This is entirely correct. You see, this is what they worry about. And I have a colleague, if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you know of him, Kevin Goodsman, who said the very first thing that he had to do in law school, one of the very first things, was give uh, an opinion on how Brown v. Board of Education could fit the Constitution. You, you, had, you had to come up with a way that it was constitutional, that it fit the Constitution. And he's, he's said many times, you can't, from an originalist position in particular, you can't find a way. This is a political decision. Now, we could say, looking back, uh, it was you know the right decision. I mean, there were a lot of people who were supportive of it. Even in the South, there were people that, particularly moderates, even liberal Southerners, were supportive of this. If you read uh, Francis Butler Simpkins' History of the South, which is a good history of the South, they get into this. And there was a lot of uh, people in the South who really just didn't know what to do, and they had to have some other way around this. So they welcomed federal intervention on this issue. And there were, of course, a lot of Southerners who didn't, and not just in the South, but in Boston, too, when they were forced to integrate their schools as well. But what we're seeing now, of course, is the progressives start to push for segregation again. So, I mean, this is all this stuff is just very strange. But under an originalist definition, he's right about this. Brown v. Board of Education is very hard to defend on an originalist position. You can't really. This is a state issue. Education was a state issue. And, as he points out, the Congress did not believe that it applied to schools because they segregated the schools in the District of Columbia. The Congress did that. So, of course, it wasn't, uh, the, the 14th Amendment didn't deal with education. It never did. That's an expansive view of the court, a political view, not a view based on the law. Emotion, right? Oh, my gosh, if you're an originalist, then you're for segregation. That doesn't mean you're for segregation. It means you're for the law. So if you want to change it, change the Constitution. You want the federal government to have control over education? Add an amendment to it. Then you can change. Then, then you can have the federal government deal with education. But until then, it's unconstitutional. We could have a we could have a real discussion about it then. Under originalism, Loving versus Virginia, which declared state laws prohibiting interracial marriage unconstitutional, was wrongly decided because most states had such laws when the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified. Again, look, he's going after the Fourteenth Amendment here. You see, this is. What he's admitting in this piece is that this is all based on the 14th Amendment, not the original Constitution, but the 14th Amendment. It's, an, it's an, a poor reading of the 14th Amendment, which, by the way, the Supreme Court has said they're not going after. The majority, Only Thomas said something about the 14th Amendment being expansively done and bad. Everyone else on the court said, no, no, this isn't, I mean, we're not going to go after that, just on this one issue. 
Under originalism, Griswold v. Connecticut, which prohibited right to purchase and use contraceptives, was also wrongly decided. Under the 14th Amendment. Right, this is the 14th Amendment. This is what they're talking about, right? So what, what Chemerinsky is going after is the 14th Amendment. An interpretation of the 14th Amendment. But again, this is all based on originalism. Look what he picked out. Race. Procreation. That's what he's going after here, right? These are all, I don't want to be, I don't want to be seen as any of these things. I don't want to be seen as someone who, who doesn't like these. We're, we're living in a progressive society, modern society. I don't want to be seen as pre-modern. This is an emotional appeal. He knows who he's targeting here. Any theory that makes Brown and Loving and Griswold illegitimate is one that should be rejected. It's not a theory. It's a fact. But, again, if you want to have the federal government get involved in these, well, then you need to change the Constitution and allow the federal government to... to eat. This is all about the states, right? It's, it's an attack on federalism. Essentially, what Chemerinsky doesn't like is federalism, unless it works for him which is the gun control case. Then it works for him. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Moreover, the assumption of originalism is that there is an original meaning for constitutional provisions that can be discovered. The reality is that so many people were involved in drafting and ratifying constitutional provisions and practices were sufficiently divergent that it is a fiction to say that there is a clear answer from history that can resolve modern constitutional questions. No, it's not. I've proven it. The Founding Fathers got into the Constitution. What was the general consensus? Well, the states had control over these issues, and the federal government had control over these issues, and that was it. That was it. That was originalism. It's very clear that the originalism means federalism. <laughs> it's so simple. It's so simple. That's what it means. The federal government has control over very limited issues, and the states have control over everything else. The result is that originalists pick and choose from the historical record to support the conclusion they want. Well, that's, but he's distorting what originalism is. Either the states can do it or the federal government can do it. And if, the, if it doesn't say the federal government can do it, the federal government can't do it. And therefore, it goes back to the states. It's very simple. All of these social issues, all the culture war is a state issue. The states have control over these things. Now, you can, you can not like what the states are doing, but then you have state courts to go after that, right? It's also an expansive view of the 14th Amendment. This is the other problem. The 14th Amendment is the thorn. It's the problem. And it's a distorted reading of the 14th Amendment by progressives that cause all the issue in the 20th century. The conservatives on the court ignore originalism when it does not serve their purposes. In 2013, the court declared unconstitutional a crucial provision of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that requires states with a history of race discrimination and voting to get pre-approval before making significant changes to their election systems. The court said that provision, that provision violated the principle of equal sovereignty among the states. But this cannot be historically justified since the Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also created military rule over southern states. Yes, unconstitutionally, right? There's, no, there's nothing in the Constitution that allows the Congress to do this. This is not originalism. That's not originalism. Well, actually, that is, right? That is originalism. Now, you could say that the Voting Rights Act, in some way, um, is supported by the 15th Amendment because the Congress has can make appropriate legislation to enforce the 15th Amendment. You could say this, right? You could make an argument there. But the 14th Amendment? 
the Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment, this isn't really a 14th Amendment issue, it's a 15th Amendment issue, also created military rule over southern states. Illegally, by the way. That's an illegal move. There's nothing in the, Congress, the Constitution that allows the Congress to do that. But the, the whole point of that was that the states somehow were no longer states. Well, where does it say that in the Constitution? That the general government has the ability to, in, to make a state not a state anymore? This Again, the radical Republican class, I get into this. Thad Stevens makes the argument, because of war, that there was the South was actually out of the Union. But... Most of the people in the Congress didn't believe that. Stevens is saying you're making a, a fatal legal mistake here in doing this because if the states have been in the Union the whole time, you can't do anything that you are doing. That would be the correct position. Likewise, that 1868 Congress adopted many race-conscious programs, such as the Freedmen's Bureau, which you could argue was unconstitutional, which today would be considered affirmative action, which is unconstitutional. Yet there is very little doubt that the Supreme Court in the coming term will overrule decades of precedents allowing colleges and universities to engage in affirmative action. Again, this is an emotional appeal, right? So about, oh my gosh, we're going to go back to the 1860s. We're going back to the 1840s. We're going back to a time of slavery and race, racism. That's what we're going to. Again, it's, it's designed to appeal emotionally people, not logically. Because think about it. How many states do you really believe are going to go back to the 1850s in terms of legislation. I could say probably zero. <laughs> I mean, this is just, it's a bad argument, right? The implications of a court committed to originalism are frightening. That's a word. That's an emotional word. Frightening. <laughs> it's frightening. An, overturning an overruling row, the conservative justice said that a right should be protected only if it is in the text of the Constitution or safeguarded by a long, unbroken tradition. Adhering to this doctrine would put in jeopardy the right to marry. It would? <laughs> well, the states could do this. The right to procreate. It does? I mean, so you have no right anymore? Uh, again, look at the emotional language being used here. The right to custody of one's children. The right to keep the family together. The right to parents to control the upbringing of their children. That's an, that's an amazing uh, statement that he's saying this control, you lose the right to do that when it's people like Chemerinsky that were so against parents putting their kids in school during COVID and everything. I mean, I'm sure Chemerinsky was 100% for the lockdowns. Where was the right for parents to control the upbringing of their children at that point? The right to purchase and use contraceptives. The right of consenting adults to engage in private consensual sexual activity. And the right of, of competent adults to refuse medical care. You mean like a vaccination? No. None of these rights can be justified under the court's rigid historical focus. Again, an emotional argument, not a logical one, because you can go back and look at the states where all this stuff in many states is not going to be touched by any type of originalist interpretation of the Constitution by the Supreme Court. Not any of it. Now, if the court is correct, what they would do with something like, say, affirmative action. All federal affirmative action would be unconstitutional. All of it. All federal affirmative action. All federal laws in, in any of these things would be unconstitutional. But state laws, either pro or against, for or against, would be constitutional. Because there's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits any of these things. Even the 14th Amendment. 
Chief Justice John Marshall wrote in 1819 that ours is a constitution intended to endure for ages to come and consequently to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. And you notice who he picks here, John Marshall, 1819. And, of course, um, the opinion that he's using there, or the language he's using there, is coming from McCulloch v. Maryland. Well, of course, McCulloch v. Maryland, because it's the you-can-do-anything-you-want-to-do clause of the Necessary and Proper Clause. That's where we get it, right? I mean, this is originalists are against McCulloch v. Maryland. Yes, because McCulloch v. Maryland was a very bad decision, not based on originalism, but based on uh, the opposite of originalism and how the Constitution was argued at ratification. The current court ignores the historical truth, this historical truth, and instead misuses history to support exactly the conservative results that it prefers. No, they're just going to the way the Constitution was argued when it was ratified. In fact, even McCulloch v. Maryland people pointed this out, right? You've got the Richmond Junto who are blasting this decision. You've got lots of people who are against this thing, right? Lots and lots of Americans who were members of the founding generation who said this was a bad decision. Marshall himself and the Virginia Ratifying Convention said that the federal government would not invalidate a state law. Okay, so that's, that's the point. Originalism was a destructive approach, destructive, again, an emotional word, to constitutional interpretation in 1987 when Robert Bork was rejected for a seat on the Supreme Court. It is no more legitimate or desirable today. Desirable is the important word for here. Not legitimate. It is a legitimate argument. But this is Chemerinsky. It's desirable. And Chemerinsky, of course, is the dean of the UC Berkeley Law School. I should get his book, Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism, and uh, review it. Sounds like a real hoot, real page turner. Uh, so this was originally published in the LA Times, but I had to talk about this. This was a listener-generated episode, by the way, because a listener sent this to me. So thank you for doing that. And um, I mean, it's just this is just laughable. It's so funny. It's laughable. All right, that's it for the, today's episode of the Brian McLean Hand Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.